The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Luke 24, starting at verse 13, invite you to follow in God's word. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but couldn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's holy word, true in every part, with total authority to teach us what we need to know for life and salvation. You know, on Easter mornings around here, your nose can tell you who attended the 6.30 a.m. sunrise service. 
There aren't probably too many of those folks in this service. Most of them come to the 810 worship. But there may be a few, and they know what I'm talking about because when we gather on the cemetery behind our building for very early morning worship, one of our men brings a half a dozen or more cut-off oil drums and builds wood fires in them. And on most Easter mornings, we need that warmth as we huddle up there before sunrise. But it has the effect that by the time you come into the church, you can be identified by your well-smoked flavor, let's say. I've told my wife every year now my trench coat goes to the cleaner after Easter to get the smoke out of it from sunrise service. You know, when I think about huddling in the early morning hour around a warm fire to greet the Lord that way. It makes me think of the fire of passion and joy for Christ that the Scripture says ought to burn in the heart and the mind of every true believer in Christ. Sadly, though, it's possible for some people to have a mere superficial contact with the Son of God and There doesn't seem to be any real flame in them. The other week I was thinking about this possibility, and this I don't know why this image came. I guess I was hearing about nuclear reactors in Japan, and I was thinking, well, what if there were a group of hikers who approached a a nuclear facility and somehow all the security at the gate just wasn't in place or broke down, and, and these hikers who were just out for a pleasant day together waltzed on through the gate into the nuclear power plant without anyone seeing them or stopping them, or nor did they realize what they were entering or where they were. And they might hike around the grounds of this big installation and marvel at the buildings and say, oh, it was some kind of a factory here or something, wonder what this place is. And then maybe they would pause for a rest and sit down and lean against a big steel-walled building and with their backs against it, and one would ask the other, does it feel to you like this building is vibrating? What's that humming sound coming from inside this building? And here they would be, you know, hikers out for a day of enjoyment, not at all understanding that just a few feet from themselves is a nuclear reactor, a dynamo of tremendous power that they had no idea about. There actually are people who approach the Christian church like that, who come maybe on Easter, maybe other times, and have little understanding that in its sheer potential power to change both us and our world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ exceeds the power of any nuclear dynamo on earth. It's a power that's rooted in its factuality as the supernatural God invaded our world and came to grips with the great fact of this world that says everything that lives and breathes eventually dies. And so the Son of God came into our world and accepted that pattern and went to death, but then conquered death. And he did this in a way that gives us factual understanding of it so that we can stack up those facts against any historical thing that we might know. You name anything you want 
I'm kind of a hobbyist of American history and probably could tell you a few things about, I've been reading biographies of George Washington the last few years and could tell you a few things about his two terms as president that are known as facts. They're documented. People saw it. They wrote about it. They put it in journals. There are letters. There are all kinds of things that survive to tell us what Washington said and did was factual. Well, we have the factuality of the resurrection. And some Easter's you hear the preacher go through the the whole list of, of linked proofs, as we might call them, about the moved stone and the soldiers and all the different things that, that let us understand that this is factual. I'm not tracing that this year. That'll be another year again, Lord willing. But you know, I want to say to you that you can get all those facts in place and still the facts might be just like so much of us, a neat stack or pile of firewood stacked up to make a bonfire or a campfire, or if you build fires in a fireplace like I do, you, you know you have to learn how to, to stack the wood. You can't just throw it in there. You have to put it a certain way so the fire's going to burn right and the wood's going to fall together. Well, the facts of Easter can be like firewood, all stacked up and ready to go with no flame. And that's the case for some people. In fact, it was the case for two people we want to look at right here. They were walking down the road to their home seven miles away. Seven miles. I live five miles from here. I don't usually walk that distance, but I guess I could. And so they weren't so very far from Jerusalem. And they were headed home after a very eventful weekend. But they were downcast. They were thinking about everything that to them had ended in sadness, in disappointment, really, you would say, in tragedy. I think the, the words of the testimony of Cleopas, who speaks, that are most uh, significant to me are in verse 21 when he says, we had hoped. This man Jesus gave us some hope, but now we don't have it anymore because it seemed like everything about him was falling into place, but then they arrested him, they tortured him, and he died. And to make it worse, now we don't even know where his body is. Well, I'd like to unpack this text a little bit for you and see these observations. First of all, that Jesus opened his tomb, but it seemed like nonsense. Secondly, Jesus opened Scripture and light began to dawn. Thirdly, Jesus opened eyes of faith and hearts caught on fire. Verses 13 to 24 have Jesus opening his tomb to something that seemed like nonsense. Here, this Emmaus Road account reminds us, you know, belief in Easter for the first eyewitnesses of it was not an automatic thing. Peter didn't run up to that tomb and say, oh, I see it now. Why did I forget? He said he was going to rise. Just go to verse 12, which I didn't even read. And Peter looked in and saw the strips of linen, and he went away wondering what had happened. He didn't figure it out right away. It was too stunning. It was too amazing to be taken in. And here are these two people that didn't even have Peter's advantage of of seeing the tomb. They're going away and saying, well, we had hoped Well, we thought this was going to be the epitome of our religion. This was the Messiah. It seemed that way, but not now. And to make matters worse, we don't even know where his body is. 
I love the soft drama of the Gospels. And you see this in verse 15. No drum roll, no trumpet blare, when it says, as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus came up and walked along with them. Just a stranger who appeared from the side road or something, and you do the common thing. You're traveling the same direction. Of course, you walk together. What are you talking about? Where are you from? And it begins to be apparent as he says, well, what have, what have you been conversing about? That he was the only person who didn't know about the great events in Jerusalem that, that had consumed the attention of Cleopas and his unnamed companion. Of course, we know. Don't we have, you know, we're omniscient in this. We know who he was. And we know that he knew everything about what happened in Jerusalem because he was the person that it was all about. But I love the gentleness of Christ. Tell me about it. He could have told them about it, but he wasn't there to lecture. He was there to listen. Tell me about it. Isn't that the way God deals with us so many times? He invites us to repent, to open up our lives. And, you know, people hear the word repent, and they think, well, that means list my bad sins on the blackboard. Well, that, that's, part, that's one component of repentance, perhaps. But I think one of the things repentance is about is right here. Tell the Lord, dump out at the Lord's feet, if you need to, all the confusion, all the mental turmoil, all the questions that you just don't understand, all the things that have you tied up in knots. Take the first step of telling him what a mess of misunderstanding your view of the world really is. And allow him to listen to you, because he really wants to do that. And he's saying to you today, perhaps, tell me about it. Talk to me about your turmoil as you look at the world with disappointment. But then secondly, the heart of this passage comes in verses 25 through 27. When Jesus gives a gentle rebuke and then opens the Scripture and light started to dawn for these people. A while ago, I read a a tongue-in-cheek sermon in a book. It wasn't a sermon I heard, but it was a sermon written in a very ironic way, and the title of the sermon was, How to Be a Successful Hypocrite. So everything in the sermon was, you know, telling you to do things that you really ought not to do. You were supposed to listen to it backwards. And one of the things that this sermon said was, get yourself, if you, if you want to be a successful hypocrite, get yourself a big Bible and always carry this big Bible to church. Keep it very prominent and tell your friends how totally you trust in the authority of this Bible. But never, ever, ever read the Bible. Because a hypocrite who does that and consistently, prayerfully searches the Bible for truth will not remain one for very long. I thought of that when I saw Christ here saying to these people in their confusion, how foolish you are. Don't you know the source you have to understand these things that are so confusing to you? And with that rebuke, He didn't hit them over the head with it, but he did kind of give them a bit of a rebuke here and say, all right, let me talk to you about it. 
And we have this wonderful thing, verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in the Scriptures concerning himself. I've heard more than one great preacher or Bible commentator or theologian say that if there was any point in the New Testament where they would be allowed to time travel back and insert themselves to be present, this would be it to attend and walk along for those few miles and listen to Jesus, the Son of God, explaining how he himself was the entire fulfillment of the Old Testament. I would give any class, all the classes I've ever attended in Bible and theology, to be in that one. He showed them how all the Scriptures talked about him how he was prefigured in the whole Old Testament, how I've been rereading a series of mystery novels that my wife and I uh, particularly enjoy. There's a new one due out, and I decided I was going to reread the five of them and be all up to date on the characters when the new one came out. And you know how a mystery is. You you read the book, and there's going to be something at the end that's the climax, and if you miss that, you miss the whole story. Well, Jesus was the climax of the Old Testament, It was a wonderful story. It pointed to great things that God wanted to do and and had many symbols and, and predictions of things, none of which had been completed by the book of Malachi and the 400 years of silence after that book. And so here was Jesus, I'm sure, suggesting passages. Maybe he talked to them about the manna in the wilderness and how God miraculously fed his people and how he was going to do that in his son. Maybe he talked to them about the Passover lamb, the perfect lamb that prefigured himself. Maybe he talked to them about David and his reign and how he was David's greater son. Perhaps he went all the way back to Genesis 3.15, which predicts all the way there in the Garden of Eden that the son of the woman, think of that phrase in Genesis 3, the son of the woman, would come and crush the head of the serpent. Maybe he talked about the suffering servant of Isaiah or Ezekiel's son of man or Zechariah's true shepherd or dozens of other things. But how amazing that must have been to hear and see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the whole Bible. Two confusing people thought his sufferings and his death proved that Jesus was not God, and here he is showing them that his sufferings and death proved that he was. And Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 1.20, no matter how many promises God has made, every single one of them has their yes and amen in Christ. Folks, don't settle for a brand of Christianity where you write the script yourself, where you invent your own doctrines, where you say, well, I suppose God ought to be like this. It's Holy Scripture that turns on the lights for you and shows you the Son of God, Jesus Christ, suffering on a cross, rising from a tomb as the fulfillment of everything God planned and undertook to do. You know, the common thing today, I was watching something on the History Channel the other night. I I love the History Channel for many things, but I sure don't like them when they get on the Bible. Uh, Man, it's poison. 
and they had something about the Bible where they're consulting, and all these PhDs, you know, this guy's at Claremont University, and, and this guy's at San Diego. They're never a single evangelical, never does a single, a single evangelical get consulted when they talk about the Bible. And they go, oh, yes, well, we all know the Bible's full of contradictions and this and that, and we all know this, and, and wait a minute. I don't accept your presuppositions. How am I going to accept your conclusions? But they just take off and tell you everything that's wrong with the Bible and why it's inaccurate and doesn't mean what you think it means and so on and so forth. I have never met a person, honestly and truly, never met a sincere seeker who said, I want to know the truth of God. I'm going to take the book that God presented in history, written by many different authors over a long period of time, with all of its threads converging and coming together, and I'm going to approach this book. Yes, I won't start with Ezekiel or Leviticus or something, but Genesis and Exodus, the Gospels, Acts, Romans, and I'm going to ask God, what does it all mean? I've never met the person who prayerfully and sincerely did that, who came away afterwards and said, I'm more confused now than I was when I started. Never met that person. Because God uses his word as a searchlight beacon to show us that Christ, crucified, risen, glorified, is the fulfillment of everything he intended to do in history. There's a wonderful verse in Acts, a little verse not often noticed, Acts 10.43, that says all the prophets testify about Christ so that everyone who believes in him receives life in his name. What were the prophets testifying about? Just an interesting puzzle for you to figure out? No, a person, someone who would come and consummate everything. Jesus opened the Scripture. And the light really began to dawn, and we would have life in his name. Well, thirdly, I want you to see this morning how he opened eyes of faith and two hearts to start with, and then many others caught fire. When they reached Emmaus, interesting little phrase, Luke. Luke so paints a human drama in just a few words. He says, Jesus acted as if he was going further. What does that mean? Does that mean he didn't intend to have this, this little scene with them that, at the supper? Or does it mean, as I think many commentators correctly say, he wanted them to invite him? He wasn't going to impose himself. He waited for them to say, would you stay with us? Oh, we'd be so eager to hear more from you. Would you stay and have a meal with us? And he did. And then as he broke bread, now this wasn't Holy Communion, this wasn't the Lord's Supper, it was, it was dinner. And he sat down and he broke bread, and it says, as he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. He didn't change, they changed. Something happened that was of the Holy Spirit. Faith converted them from a sleep of doubt and broke through, just like if you had a, a, a lighter and you flicked it and the flame came out. I think that's what, that was this moment for them. I love the little uh, testimony C.S. Lewis tells of his own conversion. A literary man, a university man, very brilliant, excellent writer. Many of you know about C.S. Lewis. And it, he tells in his autobiography a, a neat little book called Surprised by Joy how he was an agnostic, how he fought 
Christianity. He thought it was wrong. He thought Christians were dumb and crazy. He argued with them. But he had been doing quite a bit of Bible reading and and talking with Christians. And God, it seemed, was doing something in his life. He wasn't sure what it was. And then one day, he and his brother, both were unmarried men, and Warney, the brother, had a motorcycle. In those days, this is, I guess, 19, probably 20s, 1920s, I think, um, the motorcycle had a sidecar. Hey, you motorcycle guys, wouldn't that have been a, what was it, an Indian? I don't know, some kind of great motorcycle probably. But anyway, Clive, C.S. Lewis, was going to ride in the sidecar while Warney drove, and they were going out into the country for an outing. Just an ordinary day. And Lewis said all the things that had been going on in his mind He wasn't particularly thinking about all of his arguments with Christianity and all of his Bible reading, but he got in the sidecar with Warney and took off, and here's here's his testimony. He says, when we began the trip and I was riding in the sidecar of the motorcycle to leave our home, I was not a Christian. When we reached our destination, I knew that I believed in Christ. Isn't that marvelous? God broke in. He wasn't even concentrating on it. He wasn't in a debate. He wasn't reading a book. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes, and he said, you know what? It's all true. And from then on, God had his hold on one of the great disciples of the 20th century. Well, here are these two in Emmaus. Divide the bread and hand it to them. What was it about that? I don't know. And what is it? He disappeared from their sight? Well, I'm not ready to explain to you the unique science governing the resurrection body of Christ. Did he just actually disappear? Did he get up and excuse himself? He wasn't there any longer, one way or another. And the lesson of that seems to be that once our faith knows him for what he is, his physical presence doesn't matter so much. Now, don't we think we'd like to be there? What would it have been? to behold Jesus in the flesh. Well, the Scripture actually says, blessed are your eyes that have not seen him and still believe. You have the reality of him without having, you know, it wasn't even easy for those who saw him to immediately take in Easter faith. He may be gone materially from our sight today, but he's present. He abides, just as those two knew that he did And they got up, apparently it was evening, it said they'd come all the way, at least seven miles. Most of you don't walk seven miles at a short stretch. Of course, they walked a lot more in those days. It seems to say they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They didn't wait days. They got up and said, it's night. We've got to go back and report this. Let's go. And they went down that road as fast as they could go. But hear the conclusion of what they said. It's so important. It's the core of what I want you to take away. Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the word of God? There's a new gospel congregation in our community started by a man I know, fine minister. It's called the Church of the Burning Heart. Maybe some of you have encountered this or seen the ads in the paper. I know I was talking to someone who had seen the ad and they said, oh, What's that? Church of the Burning Heart? That sounds really odd. I said, no, it's not odd at all. Don't you know where that comes from? Check out Luke 24, 32. It comes from the people who saw Christ in the page of Scripture. And I thought, what a wonderful name for a church. 
What a great name. Shouldn't that be the name of our church? Church of the Burning Heart, where God's people burn with the flame of conviction that Jesus Christ is risen, where they burn with the joy that he brings, even in difficult and disappointing circumstances, where there's a flame to warm and enlighten them when they're in tough times and the way ahead they can barely see a step or two to go, but they say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I think Easter faith happens like this. The historic facts that we can argue and logically put out for you are the wood of the campfire, all arranged, and there it is. But it's not a fire yet until the Holy Spirit of God strikes the flame and it blazes up into something that lasts and perseveres and warms and even thrills us. All the rest of our lives on this earth, a flame in our souls that cannot be extinguished. When I choose this illustration, I have to recognize, boy, I'm getting to be an old guy. My illustrations are old. You know, there are young people here that don't have a clue who Vince Lombardi is. (laughs) They know that we give out a Vince Lombardi trophy for the Super Bowl, but they have no picture in their mind of this fiery man of fierce temperament who coached the Green Bay Packers and coached them passionately. And his great quarterback, Hall of Famer Bart Starr, said once about Coach Lombardi this, quote, I wrote it down and I can't forget it. Coach Lombardi taught me this about football. You must be dominated by one flaming desire and it's got to glow in you all the time. Now that's about football. Football is a good thing. But the fire of Jesus Christ that's got to glow in you all the time is a much greater thing. I'm not talking to you about being an emotional Christian. Some of you are scared about that kind of talk. Oh, what's this guy? I thought Presbyterians weren't emotional. They prove it every Sunday, you know. I'm not going to tell you it's mainly about emotion, folks. It's about facts. It's about logic. It's about the truth of God. It's about the Scripture. But once you encounter Christ in the Scripture and God in history working through Christ, can you possibly remain emotionally detached from that? Doesn't your joy get a hold of you sometimes and rise up so that it's, it's that joy unspeakable and full of glory that the Scripture talks about? You know what? I think it's strange I doubt if anyone here living near Philadelphia is the, the biggest sports town near to us, that any of you have ever had anyone approach you and say, oh, I hear you like the Phillies, or I hear you like the Eagles. Now, I want to caution you. Be careful. Don't become a fanatic. It's a bad thing to be. A, don't get too excited about your team. Yeah, that's bad. Did anybody ever say that to anyone here? Not only did no one ever say that to you, as a matter of fact, The Phillies and the Eagles and any other sports team anywhere encourage you to be a fanatic, right? They want you to be a fanatic. There might as well be a sign over the stadium, fanatics welcomed, act crazy, paint your face, be stupid, fall all over the place, jump up and be joyful, express yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't understand it. Why is it when a Christian comes forth with bold conversion experience and says, Christ, 
is the center of my life. He rules me. He dominates me. He's everything. Joy in him is the greatest joy, and it impels me to do everything that I do. There's somebody, and a lot of them are Christians, standing by with buckets of cold water. So cool that guy off. Watch out, he's dangerous. He's too passionate. Something lit the joy of Cleopas and his companion. It wasn't subjective experience. It wasn't emotionalism. It wasn't manipulation by Jesus. It was the word of God from history being fulfilled in the person of the Son of God, alive. And I want to know if that in any way has taken hold of you. The prophet Jeremiah once said a long time ago that God's word in him was like a fire inside his bones. And he, he just couldn't be still. It was burning up inside. He had to let it go. He had to speak. How can you and I live our lives blasé about this great fact of human history? Moses saw a burning bush in the wilderness centuries and centuries ago, a bush that was not consumed or destroyed by the flame. It was a flame that warmed and lightened and energized but did not destroy You guys are going to go down your Emmaus Road tomorrow morning. I don't know if it takes you into the city of Lancaster or to Harrisburg. Maybe you just, you're retired. You live at your place of residence and don't go much of anywhere, but you head into a day and a week that's full of normal affairs like Cleopas and his companion who may have been his wife. We don't know. What spirit are you going down the Emmaus Road on Monday morning? We hoped there was somebody who was a savior, but he let us down. We wished there was somebody who made sense out of the chaos of this world, but we haven't found him yet. We had great ambitions for this Jesus, but he doesn't seem to be the one. Is that the spirit you'll take down your Lancaster Road or your Harrisburg Road or whatever it is tomorrow? Or will you go down the road saying, the greatest fact in the history of the world has been made known to me. God came in flesh. He came into this world. He was a man like me, and yet he was God. He died like I'm going to die and like my loved ones die, but he's not dead. And the bonfire that he lit in me is one that nothing the world can ever do to extinguish. It glows all the time. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we thank you for the facts of Easter and the joy of Easter and for the bonfire that flamed up in those two hearts of those disciples. We weren't there with them, but we can taste it. We can imagine it because you have lit your Holy Spirit fire and so many of us. And I pray, O oh God, that those whose lives are cold and barren and empty today would seek from you and petition you to light that fire, to show them the truth of Christ, the fulfillment of Scripture, Christ, the living Lord, Christ, the only Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.